This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Hi folks, Mark Lautenschlager here in the home studio. Just uh, a quick note before we get into this week's episode of Out of Water, that uh, once again, we have split this week's episode into two parts. The first part is available today. This will be Thursday that we release that one. And the second part we hope to have ready to go for tomorrow. So check back tomorrow for the second part, which will be actually be part four of a guided tour of Holy Week. And uh, as with last week, I want to remind everyone that Sam and I are doing this remotely. Uh, He's on his back porch while I'm in my office at home. So there are, again, just a few spots where you hear a sort of metallic artifacting on Sam's voice because he's coming across the Internet. Most of the time, it sounds like he's in the studio on a mic with me. Uh, but every so often, it sounds like he might be on a cell phone. So it's uh, it's not his fault. Just like last time, blame the Internet. So without further ado, here is part three of a guided tour of Holy Week. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager. And joining me today, as always, is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith, who in this new era, this brave new world of social distancing and uh, virus avoiding, is back porching it again. I am back porching it. Yes. It's, it's quite nice today. It's, is it cool outside? I haven't been outside yet today. I've still been living in the dome. I'm under the dome. Is it nice outside today? I wouldn't say it's cool, but it's nice. Oh, okay. All right. It was cool last night. I actually, when I took the trash cans out to the road last night, I was, I was sort of impressed with the South Florida weather. I'm thinking, this is kind of a bonus as we're all being told to shelter in place here and, and <laughs> stay close to home, is that at least when you do step outside, it's, it's nice, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, so, folks, if you hear the uh, the sound that you think, wow, that sounds a lot like a pool pump running in the background, uh, you'd be correct. It is. it is a pool pump running <laughs> in the background. So this is the marvels of modern technology. Well, we've been taking you on a guided tour of Holy Week where we've been sort of going through the events of the week. Um, the purpose of this is we set out to do it. And if you listen to the episodes last week, you'll, you'll understand this. If you didn't, by the way, listen to the two episodes that we released last Thursday, um, I would encourage you to go back and do that because it does, uh, obviously that's part one and two of our guided tour of Holy Week, but also to sort of let out this premise, which is uh, that we're all familiar with the events of Holy Week, Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. So we're familiar with these events, but the connectedness of these events, how that ran through the week as connecting in forward in time to us and back in time to the symbolism from Israel's past and from the Old Testament. So it's such a web of of information and content, we decided to try to kind of present it as a whole. This is, you know, Holy Week, in spite of the fact that we keep breaking it up into different episodes because we talk too long. So when we left off last week, uh, we had just uh, concluded talking about the Last Supper um, that that they'd gathered in the the upper room and that Jesus had taken them through the first, you know, it it was the first communion service. Right, yeah. Do you think that they knew it was the first communion service? Well, I mean, when Jesus says, you know, that you're going to do this and, until I come again, they still don't understand. They still haven't 
wrapped their minds around the fact that he is going to die. They don't understand that he means it when he's talking about death and resurrection. You know, they're still confused when he's put into a tomb. They're, they're not sure what to make of it. And so I think all of the symbolism kind of hits their foreheads and drops on the table, and then it makes sense to them. <laughs> it makes sense to them later. That is, that, is, that is a picture that only a teacher could offer. <laughs> that is true. How many times have you imagined your words flowing out from your mouth, striking the foreheads of your students and dropping to the desk in front of you? <laughs> More times than I'd want. <laughs> okay. So I think you're right. I think that they were that they were listening to it. They knew that obviously something big was happening, but they didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't really know what he was talking about. Yeah, but he gives that law, which is actually it's why we call it Maundy Thursday. It comes from... It's translated from the word mandated. Jesus is giving this this order. You know, I want you to celebrate communion. This is it's where we get the word mandatory. Um, it's he's commissioning us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So Maundy Thursday comes from this mandate that he gives to the church to celebrate communion. After they had gathered up there, and then they they headed out. They went to. Uh, they were going back across the Mount of Olives, right? I mean, they, the, they left from there and, and left out of town. So they went to this, mm-hmm. the Garden of Gethsemane. That's actually on the Mount, isn't it? So, so if, imagine Jerusalem proper being one hill. Then you're going to go down a valley. And then when you start up the next hill to the east side, that's the Mount of Olives. And the Garden of Gethsemane is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. So it's at the very bottom of that hill. So just outside of town. Correct. Okay. I mean, you can you can look and from from Gethsemane, where I've been a couple of times, you can look and see the gates of Jerusalem. Mm. So they had gone just outside and entered this this garden area. Now they mm-hmm. stopped there. So what what was Jesus doing by stopping there? So the the whole point of what he's going to do at the Garden of Gethsemane is to pray. But one of the things that's interesting, I, I think he goes there knowing that Judas will know where to find him. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, it says he went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. Um, And in the Gospel of John, it says that Judas knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So he says, Judas, go do what you're, you know, what you're planning to do. He's going to betray him. And then Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where they typically went. And Judas, when he comes with the soldiers, knows he's going to be there. And so some sense, Jesus isn't running away from this. You know, he's setting his face toward the fate of the cross. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas is going to know where he is. Um, not excusing Judas at all. But he, during this time, he just, he braces and he wants, he spends time with the Father in prayer and he is, he's bracing for what he what he knows is about to come, and the passion actually starts here. Um, this is this is where he takes his disciples. He says, "Come with me." Then he takes his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them a little bit further. And he says, "Pray with me." And he falls on his face in agony, and he is crying out to the Lord, "Lord, I do not want to drink this cup, the cup of wrath." but not my will, yours be done. And it says that, you know, he gets up and he looks back and he sees that his apostles and his greatest hour of need are all wiped out. You know, this has been a stressful week. They're all sleeping and he wakes them up and, you know, can you not stay awake with me for one hour, you know, of prayer? And he goes back for a second time and they fall asleep and he goes back for a third time and he falls asleep. And we're told 
that when he falls on his face that he is in such agony of of knowing what is about to come on him that he actually experiences uh, sweating like blood which is actually a real medical condition. It's called hematidrosis, and it happens when when the little capillaries and everything else throughout your body are so overwhelmed with blood pressure that they burst, and you begin to sweat blood through your pores. Um, and so he is at such a, a heightened sense of of real stress upon his body that he's sweating blood in agony, and his disciples are sleeping. The idea that he went there to meet them <laughs> is something that it's pretty strong to say that he actually you know he could have gone he could have made that you know guys I think I'm why don't we go down by the wharf tonight or why don't we go yeah. hang out you know wouldn't we get a better view of the mound if we were up higher you know no he went to the place that he always went because he had some people to meet and that's a really amazing thing to think about yeah, and when you're thinking, you know, you, you, we imagine the passion, you know, Jesus carrying the cross, every step is intentional, but he deliberately put himself there knowing what was coming. He had made his decision that he was going to go to the cross for me when he went to Jerusalem, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. All of this Holy Week is Jesus' res- resolved decision to lay down his life for me and you. And so then he, like you said, he went in um, with his inner circle, went deeper into the garden to pray. And that exchange where they fell asleep and he came out and expressed his disappointment with them that they couldn't Mm -hmm. stay awake even for an hour. You know, that's, I got to say, again, I identify with the disciples because I've been there at times (laughs) where it's like, you know, you need to stay awake for something and you just can't. Yeah, uh, and you know what? If it's your wife that's trying to talk to you about something important late at night, and you can't stay awake, that bad things can happen to you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that that is correct. But, I have experienced that before. What? So when Jesus came out and scolded them, um, I'm just uh, I, I don't think it's scolding. Okay, you know, I, I think when when he says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, you know that it's colloquial. It would be. It would be the equivalent of him coming out and looking at you and say, I know you meant well, like your spirit was willing. Mm-hmm. But after this week, you know, that has been so stressful, remember Monday and then Tuesday and then sure. super stressful week, they just don't have it in them. And it's, 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 it's kind of it's setting the tone that everyone else is beginning to fail and fall away and he alone is able to carry this burden. Really, only Jesus could have gone through this. Yeah. This was something so far beyond the capacity of a human being to do. If, it, if, if he were just a man, at some point, he's going to collapse under this. But he walks this through mm-hmm. the whole week. You know, every step intentional, as you were saying. Um, so you don't think that he was expressing irritation with them. You think that it was actually a comforting, like, I understand. I, I think so I don't think irritations there I think there's sadness I think he felt lonely in this mm-hmm. um, I do think that he wishes that he had somebody to be with him in the middle of this struggle right. so I think he's disappointed but I don't think it's irritation he understands they would if they could yeah. but they just can't he alone has to carry this now and you think about too Sam that's part of the of the hardship that he endured in here is that he endured this all in isolation the the few friends that he had and he he didn't 
he didn't have a big circle of friends. He had his disciples um, are about to be taken away from him, and he's going to go through the rest of this on his own. Uh, so there was a sense in which I think he felt isolated, and he so he yeah. understands. One of the things we struggle with is we struggle with feeling alone at times. Like mm-hmm. you know, we don't have anybody with us, and you know, we'll say, "Hey, God knows." that feeling of being alone. And he does, because yeah. tonight Jesus feels alone. You know, when you think of, of the cries that Jesus offers in his life, you know, he's been hungry, he's fasted for 40 days, he knows what it's like to, to be, you know, all these different experiences that he has chalked up. But when you look at Jesus weeping, it is always relational when he weeps. So, for example, it's, he weeps over Jerusalem and says, how I've longed to gather you to myself, but you were not willing. It's, it's when he is, when he's not able to love those that are, that he wants to draw near to, that is when you see tears come from Jesus. It's, it's, you know, from the cross, he doesn't, he doesn't cry out, these nails are so painful and this whipping has scourged my body and this is, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a relational cry. Loneliness was, in some sense, of all the, the things we can relate to, that was what was crushing upon Jesus. He suffered the wrath of God, but in his cry, you get the sense that the most crushing element of it was the separation, hmm. was the forsakenness. And so this is the beginning right now is the beginning of when everyone is peeling away. So, you know, the crowds or whatever are going to turn against him. The priests have now turned against him. Now even his inner circle is falling away, and it's not going to be too long before God the Father himself turns his face away, and now Jesus is utterly alone. You know, that's really profound. I, uh, <laughs> as, you were, as you were saying that, and I was... I had this really strong emotional reaction to it. Like my eyes started to well up a little bit. It's like a, because this thing of that it's relational and that it's, that it's his finding himself alone and and needing to go on. Um, But the, the beautiful part of this is he presses into these relational pains for relational motives. He presses into the loneliness so that you will never be alone. That's, That's true. He's just so good and so kind, and it makes his pains all the more precious to look at and see, man, he did that for me. Um, it's awesome. And by the way, I peel away from him. Like, I can relate to those disciples. Right. We talked about this, I think, uh, I don't remember this last week, or we've done enough of these podcasts now that I'm starting to lose track of exactly when we've talked about different things, but, you know... With respect to the temptation that Jesus endured, how he fasted for 40 days to, to make himself physically weak mm-hmm. before he would be tempted, because part of the temptation was to be tempted by physical desire for food. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the devil tried to get Jesus to abuse his power in a way, to use it selfishly, I think is what you pointed out, mm-hmm. um, to feed himself, uh, and, and he didn't do that. And then... I think it's in Hebrews where it says that you know we have a high priest who has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's in Hebrews, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So this idea that you know he allowed himself to be tempted at at an extreme level, and then that later was offered to us as a comfort, 
like we like we have a high priest that knows what it's like to be tempted and and this is another comfort in that same way we're saying that we have a god who knows what it is like to be alone to lose yeah. everyone that's close to you and to have to stand alone in the hardest moment this is when he's doing that yeah i i remember seeing a comment that was made by somebody who had recently lost a son this is from a mother and I thought, man, that is profound, that the deepest grief is to have an abundance of love in your heart with no one to give it to. Um, you know, like, and so imagining this mother, you know, who's lost her son, she's got all of this love for the son, and yet she can't give it to him. Mm-hmm. And so that love just causes pain. You know, it's in some sense... Jesus is walking through this in this deep grief of having an abundance of love for people who are either actively hating him and seeking to put him to death or falling asleep or peeling away. It's like he's got all of this and nobody wants it. And yet he's persevering and pressing in because he knows it will ultimately redeem them and make their lives beautiful and bring them to himself. And it's it's amazing. It's really a beautiful picture of faithfulness and love. That's true. And, That's true. You know, the, the next the, the other thing that really strikes me about this moment when he goes in and, and prays uh, is what he prays. You know, he said, you know, Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, mm-hmm. um, that it was a it was him genuinely expressing. That he yeah. didn't want to do this. <laughs> he, yeah. he was going to do it. He never wavered in his willingness to submit to the Father and do this, but he didn't want to do it. Yeah, and that cup is very clearly the wrath of God. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, they talk repeatedly about how there is this cup of the wine of God's wrath that's being stored up for sin. And here you find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I, d- I don't want to drink it, but not my will, yours be done. He is, you know, he is going to drink that cup, and he's going to drink it bone dry for me and, and for you. And yeah, there's, there's a very real human element that nobody could stand in front of that. You know, it's like the, I, I always imagine this dam that's holding back the justice of God and has been, and it's just mounting and mounting and mounting and mounting. And Jesus stands in front of this thing knowing that it's going to collapse and pour forth on him. And he's like, I, I don't want to do this. I, I don't want to know what this is going to, to feel like, like if there's any other way. Um, and the Lord's response is, there is no other way. That's very beautiful. You know, it's, a, it's an imagery that makes it even more meaningful. It's awesome. And the whole the whole passion narrative, I don't know that we'll have enough time to touch on them, but every every single new event that goes on during this passion narrative has beautiful symbolism behind it. And the way that I read this um is you imagine Jesus who's walking through in this loneliness seeing all of this being fulfilled the the symbolism the beauty to where it's like god encouraging him you know that this is what you're accomplishing in your suffering just these little milestones that are really profound so when he finishes his time of prayer uh, mm-hmm. in the garden what happens next is this when judas shows up 
So at that point, and from the garden, like I said, you can look down into the valley. You can look up and see the gates. So if they're coming to them with a temple guard, which is a sizable sizable group of people, and they're coming in the middle of the night with torches, he'd have seen them. He could have run, but he doesn't. He stays put, and they come, and Judas comes up to him with the signal saying, you know, the one I kiss is the one who's Jesus. So which, you know, probably most of the temple guard would have recognized him anyway, um, but Judas comes up and gives Jesus a kiss, and Jesus very matter-of-factly says, you know, do what you came for. Um, and at that point, Peter and the disciples start a fight. Like, they start fighting for Jesus. So it's, you know, remember Jesus had said, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times, and Peter says, I'll never do it. And it's right in this moment where you get the sense Peter's willing to die for Jesus. He's willing to fight for Jesus. But when Jesus, in the midst of all this, you know, yells, put away your swords. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And then he heals, you know, the high priest's servant whose ear had been cut off. And Peter's going, wait a minute, like, I, I'm willing to die for you, but this is how I envision it, you know, by fighting. And Jesus is giving the impression that if you want to give your life for me, it's not going to be by fighting. And Peter doesn't know what to do with that. You know, he's he's willing to give us to die, but he's not willing to live in suffering and and sacrifice. Wow. Um, and Peter, at that point, just everybody bails and they take Jesus back to uh, the high priest's house. Uh, which there's actually two reigning high priests during this time. One's name is Annas. He is the the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and he'd actually been removed from the office of high priest and Caiaphas had been put in because of a scandal, um, but they reigned together. So both of them are kind of considered co-high priests during this time. Here's something that's always interested me about that exchange where Peter pulls out his sword and, and it says that he, it says that he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. Mm -hmm. Okay. Was that, (laughs) I I found myself wondering whether that was the immensely deft wielding, of the sword <laughs> by somebody who was looking to intimidate but not kill, or whether we see that fishermen are just not good swordsmen here. <laughs> My guess is he was that that was either bad aim or Malchus dodged. Okay, <laughs> I, I think Peter was going for a kill shot. Judas has brought the the temple guard or the what was it the temple guard? Is he brought or was he? It was. A, it is. It is the temple guard. Yes. Okay, so he brings the temple guard to him. And now they're going to they're going to drag him off. So where where does he go next? What happens next? So they they mean to take him to Caiaphas, but they know that Annas is available. So Annas was the the high priest up until 15 A.D. and the guy who was the governor before Pontius Pilate, whose name was Valerius Gratus, removed him from office. And in his place, Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law took the the formal office of being the high priest. But if you read like in in Luke 3, it refers to the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. So both of them are holding the office. Um, But Caiaphas holds it formally, but Annas is the one who's technically wielding all the power and using his son-in-law as kind of a puppet. So they take him to appear before Annas and what was their intent at that point? Was this oh, was, was this a tr- a real like we're going to try this guy, or is just like a, you know what we're going to rubber stamp this and get him out of here as quickly as possible? No, they've all come to the conclusion that they want to put 
Jesus to death. Okay. That's that's their motive. Unquestionably, the gospel makes that clear. And so Annas begins to call him out and question, you know, what have you done? What have you done? And so when Jesus says, hey, man, I've been teaching in the temple courts in front of all sorts of, you know, thousands of people, why don't you call in witnesses to tell you what I said? And it's at that point that, you know, one of the high priest officials is furious, like, how dare you talk to the high priest like that, and hits Jesus in the face, um, and they're trying to intimidate him into to giving up. And so then they take him, Honest and his officials take him still bound to his son-in-law Caiaphas, who's the official high priest, and this is going to be trial too. So the first one in front of Honest, that's not really a trial. It's basically Honest poking him, saying, "Didn't you? What about this? What about this? What about this?" And Jesus is saying, "Call your witnesses," because in the Jewish law, they were required to have two witnesses to establish the charge. But what we're going to find in this trial, they they ignore every law on how to run a trial. It's they they just want him dead. We have to say that this was a massive injustice. We all agree that he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. He didn't do anything for. But even even past that, they were violating all of their rules. This literally was something that was being done like under cover of night because it's it's like we're yeah. gonna, we are literally just going to like take this guy and 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 run him through the grinder and and move on to the next thing. It was a it wasn't a real trial. Absolutely not. Like, and, and when I put together my list of all the different laws that the Jewish people had, the Sanhedrin had, either by the word of God or by their own customs, they violated 12 of their own laws on how to conduct a trial. So, you know, one of the obvious ones, it's illegal for a chief priest to bribe an accomplice to secure an arrest. Well, they did that with Judas. It's illegal for the Sanhedrin to convene after nightfall and before the morning sacrifice. They were not allowed to do that, but they have this trial that goes all throughout the night. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin to originate charges against the accused. In other words, you couldn't have a member of the Sanhedrin who was initiating the criminal charges, it had to come from outside. But here you have the Sanhedrin with nobody bringing Jesus up on charges that has arrested him and is now putting him on trial. You, you're not allowed to issue judgments on the eve of a Sabbath or a festival. Well, they violate that one. Uh, they couldn't issue a death sentence on the same day as a guilty verdict. They violated that one. It was illegal to convict a man based on on his own comments. Well, they can't find any witnesses to agree about what Jesus had done. And so when he makes a comment later on in this trial, they use his own comments um, to convict him. It was illegal for a man to be convicted without matching testimony. We just said it's illegal for to convict a man without first conducting a recorded and balloted vote of the elders. They don't do that. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin to issue a guilty verdict outside of the temple complex. Well, they do this at Caiaphas' house. It's illegal for the in the courtyards. It was illegal for the enemies or adversaries of an accused person to sit in judgment of him. So here you have, if if you were on the Sanhedrin and you hated somebody, you were supposed to recuse yourself. Well, this whole <laughs> this whole group hates his guts. Um, it was illegal for the high priest to interrogate a criminal suspect in private. Well, Honest did that. And the judges of criminal proceedings were required to conduct a thorough investigation. They throw this thing together in the, in the hours, dark hours of the morning. So you've got at least 12 ways that they either violate Scripture or their own laws of jurisprudence 
and getting Jesus to the cross as fast as they can. How long did this go on? Did they do this all night? Yes. So they did they took him to the Romans in the morning. Correct. So you've got you've got the first person they take him to is Annas. Then they take him to Caiaphas and they everybody is running around gathering up the elders, the Sanhedrin, the chief priest and they're all summoned to come to Caiaphas's house. And so during that night they're they're trying to find witnesses and they're getting people to come forward and accuse him of all these things. And so it's this is going on all night. And so they're they are mocking him, you know, they're they're spitting at him. They they do a lot of terrible things to Jesus during the trial under Caiaphas. And then when they come to the the end of that though, they decide that they if they want him to be to be killed, they have to turn him over to the Romans, right? Because they can't do that, can they? They can't kill him themselves. So this is where, you know, there's a lot of teaching, and this I've is al- true. I've always heard that. I've always heard the, that they gave him to absolutely the Romans they true. didn't have the authority. It's absolutely true that the Jewish people were not supposed to put people to death without consent of the Romans, but they did it all the time. So, you know, it, it's like right after this, when you read in the book of Acts where you have Stephen, right? Stephen's out preaching, and the Jewish leaders get angry with him. They don't go to the Romans and say, hey, what do you think? Can we put this guy to death? They pick up rocks and they stone him to death right there. So they rarely obeyed that. But one thing the Jewish leaders would never do, they, because they knew that it would provoke Rome, the, the manner of death by crucifixion belonged to the Romans alone. No one was allowed to do that. But the religious leaders wanted the crucifixion desperately for a couple of reasons. One, they wanted to, to shove the blame onto Rome so that if the people, the crowds who liked Jesus, they don't get mad at the religious leaders, the Roman leader or the Jewish leaders could shift it over to Rome. Look, they crucified him. We're not allowed to do that. So this is Pilate's fault. Um, but then, two, there's a, a law in the Old Testament that says, Cursed is any man who hangs upon a tree. And so they're desperate to get Jesus crucified because he would be hung upon a tree and seen as cursed by the law of God. Like, their scripture. If a man dies being hung upon a tree, he is cursed. How are you going to fight that, apostles? And so they desperately want crucifixion, which they cannot do. That's interesting. You know, I, I was thinking about that when you're saying, yeah, they killed Stephen. They just stoned Stephen. And I'm thinking, well, Stephen wasn't popular like Jesus was. I mean, <laughs> right. It's true. True. I mean, it's they, true. They recognize that, the you know, hey, it was just a few days ago that these people were putting palm branches and laying their cloaks down yeah. as he was coming into Jerusalem. They got to know that if it turn, if they hear that, yeah, the, the, the high priests, they took Jesus out back and dropped a rock on his head. There's going to be people <laughs> that are very upset about that. Yeah. So, they were and, obviously playing to the crowd. But it, totally. So you look back at earlier in Jesus' life, there's multiple times in the Gospels where it says that, you know, they tried to seize him to put him to death, and he manages to escape. Well, they, I'm sure they weren't thinking, okay, we're going to have to go to Pilate. They were just going to take care of him. But because Jesus is such a public figure now, now it's tricky. One of those times, it just says that Jesus passed among them. Yeah. Um, I'm like, yeah, it's really hard to capture the Son of God when he does not want to be captured. <laughs> when he yeah, can literally true. pass among you and you don't see him. <laughs> it's like that's a, it's a, that's a small, you know, one of, those, one of those, oh, by the way, miracles. It's like, yeah, yeah he, Jesus did this. He walked amongst them. 
Really? He walked out amongst a, a crowd of people that wanted to kill him. He just passed between them? That's not that's miraculous. I mean, that's one of those small miracles that he mm-hmm. didn't make a big deal about. Uh, but it does call to the point that they would not have been able to do that. They, none of this would have happened had Jesus not willingly submitted to it. Correct. So then tomorrow, it's tomorrow. Now it's, it's, now it's Friday morning. He's overnight from Thursday to Friday. He's endured this mock the sham of a trial in front of Annas and Caiaphas and he's been he's been you know beaten and spit upon and 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 then they take him to the Romans in the morning so toward the end of the trial it says in Mark chapter 14 it says the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death but they couldn't find any many testified falsely against him but their statements didn't agree so initially you have the the Sanhedrin who's just looking for two witnesses that can agree about something to put him de- to death and Caiaphas is just furious because to this point Jesus will not answer the charges and he's you know shouting are you not going to answer what is this testimony these men are bringing against you and so jesus just remains quiet which fulfills the prophecy of isaiah 53 and and finally caiaphas just gets furious um and he's 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 not about witnesses anymore and so he goes straight up to jesus screaming angry and he says are you the christ the son of the blessed one and even though jesus had every legal right to remain silent He answers this question, knowing that it would seal his fate. Jesus says, I am. And then he says this, which is talking, he takes on the mantle of the Messiah and the Son of God. He says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And now it's over. The high priest, you know, rips his clothes, accuses Jesus of speaking blasphemy. Everybody goes crazy. The high priest is like, what do you think? You've heard him say commit blasphemy. And they all start shouting, you know, put him to death, put him to death. And so that's when they began mocking him and beating him and blindfolding, blindfolded him. They spit on him. And they just start mocking him. Prophesy, who hit you? Boom, boom. And they're just punching him and insulting him. And that's going to be the end. Now they're going to deliver Jesus to Pilate for the death penalty offense. And they're going to they're gonna be dishonest, actually. They find him worthy to be put to death for blasphemy because he claims to be the Messiah. But when they get to Pilate, you'll notice they change their tune and they're accusing him of trying to subvert Rome. So they shift the charges midstream. Hmm. Because it certainly wasn't against the law of Romans law for one of the Jewish people to say, I'm a Messiah. Yeah, they wouldn't have cared. They, <laughs> they wouldn't have cared. <laughs> Pay your taxes and shut up. Yeah, exactly. So they drag him then off to uh, Pilate. One of the things that's always intrigued me about the relationship between Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders, mm-hmm. it seems like he really had very little use for them. Yeah, he hated them. Had a history of antagonizing them. And so he was going to try to do everything that he could do to not do what they wanted him to do, which was kill Jesus. So all of history kind of it comes together in this perfect storm. Pilate had actually done lots of things to infuriate the Jews um, before this trial ever comes to him. As a Roman governor, your main job was just you needed to collect taxes for Caesar and maintain peace and order. Make sure that there was no uprisings or riots or anything like that. 
And so if you go to the secular record of how Pilate used to attempt, how he'd provoke the Jews. Um, so, for instance, one time he had Roman soldiers carrying these standards or flags that featured idolatrous images, and he had them parade around the religious quarters of Jerusalem. Well, the religious leaders, to them, that's sacrilege. They hated him. There was another time where he put, like, these golden shields um, all over the temple quarters, and they were furious. There was another time where Pilate seized money from the temple treasury to fund the construction of an aqueduct. And so the Jews hated him, and they complained to Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor at the time, saying, he's provoking a fight, we're near to riot. And Tiberius sends back a warning to Pilate, saying, if you do not keep peace and order with these Jews, I will do to you what I'd done to Sejanus, which was another governor that was put to death for provoking his people. And so Pilate at that moment is desperate for the Jews not to complain about him to Tiberius anymore, because if that happens, he's a dead man. And so the Jews know that they have him weakened. He cannot stand strong or provoke them anymore. And so the Jews know that when they go to Pilate, and they're going to use that against him in this trial. And Mark 15 says that uh, the first question it records Pilate asking him is, are you the king of the Jews? Um, and Jesus answered him and said, it is as you say. Uh, do you think Pilate there was was trying to get him to admit to being an insurrectionist? Like, are you are you saying that you're going to lead these Jews against Rome? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the, the translation there when Jesus says, it is as you say, his literal words, if you look at the Greek, the only response he gives is, you say. Um, yeah, that is correct, actually. As I look at, as I look at my uh, translation, the help, which helpfully has the added words in italics, I use these older translations. In fact, he's right. He just says, you say. So it leaves it kind of ambiguous to where, you know, is he saying, you know, it is as you say, or is he saying, that's what you say? Right. You know, <laughs> you, you know you, so it kind of leaves it ambiguous. And the idea behind that is, you know, Jesus isn't so much interested in geopolitical stuff. So the, the right, the right kind of what you take away from that is, you know, he comes and says, are you king of the Jews? Are you geopolitical? And Jesus isn't interested in that conversation. So he punts it back and says, you say, you know, like, but then he'll absolutely, he gets really excited to talk about my kingdom is not of this world. You know, uh, my kingdom is of another world. Um, and he is acknowledging that he is the king of a heavenly realm. It's really kind of interesting to me how it's the same trial. It's the same, you know, thing. But if you read the four Gospels, you pick up different things totally. in, in each of them. Each one records different aspects of it that are that when you pull them all together, you get a, a more full picture of it. But as I the, I'm looking at the Gospel of Mark right now, and it mm -hmm. said that that Pilate marveled at the fact that Jesus said nothing. It's like it never occurred because the chief priests were accusing him of things, and he said nothing. Um, and Pilate said, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? And Jesus says, still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. You know, it's like he couldn't imagine that this guy wasn't going to defend himself against yeah. these charges. Uh, and yet, that was to fulfill prophecy. Totally. When you look at the, at the prophecy, you're like, well, why is that prophecy 
so remarkable? Well, because of the circumstances in which it would be fulfilled, it was incredulous to the Roman guy watching that this guy's just standing there silently and not defending himself. Yeah. Usually people at the prospect of being put on a cross and scourged by the Romans, usually they are desperately defending their case, and Jesus is quiet. Yeah. It's it's really pretty remarkable. And the charges that they had brought against Jesus, by the way, it says in, in Luke 23, it says, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. And so they lie. I mean, that's a flat-out lie when they say that he opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar. He had... In his teachings, he had said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so they're making, they're flat out lying. Here are the religious leaders to accomplish their own political goals, lying about Jesus to secure his conviction. I mean, it's just as wicked as you can be. It's interesting, too, to me that it says that there's a custom, I guess, that they would always release a prisoner to them. Was that because of Passover? What was the custom there? So the custom was that they they had a prisoner that they would bring you know a pair of prisoners that they would bring forth and to appease the Jews because usually they had some kind of hero you know that would be arrested for subversion or something like that um, or a lesser charge and then they could get him released at that one time a year and so now Jesus or Pontius Pilate has Jesus and who's on trial and then he's like okay well let's bring out somebody who's who's you know stands to be executed so they bring out barabbas and so now they he puts before them a choice between jesus and barabbas and the way that the gospels describe barabbas we know that he's he's a criminal he's incited rebellions he's done all of these things, but you gain the impression by looking at the four Gospels that he's an insurrectionist. Right. He's somebody that wants to lead an effort to overthrow Rome. And if you go back to the early manuscripts, his name listed in some of the early manuscripts of the Gospels is actually Jesus Barabbas. And so the Gospels are actually setting something really pretty profound here. You know, Bar Abbas in, in Greek, Bar means son, Abba means father. So you have Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, son of the father, who's the insurrectionist, who's coming to overthrow Rome. That's the Messiah everyone was waiting for, right? We get a chance to have him. Or over here, you have Jesus, you know, the the true Messiah, the true son of God, who's calling upon people to take up their crosses and love their enemies and to, to consider their citizenship in heaven. And so you get your choice of these two. You can have the militant Messiah. Or you can have the peaceful, submitting, servant Messiah, and universally everybody shouts, we want Barabbas, and when Pilate says, what shall I do with Jesus, they say, crucify him. And, you know, there's a picture of this where, you know, each of us in that moment can relate to Barabbas. I've always wondered about the fact that we say, well, they hate Jesus, and and they did here in this case, it says that, uh, you know, uh, Pilate knew, by the way, I'm, I'm, again, I'm just looking at, at Mark's account of it, but the way that Pilate is digging at the Jews here, he doesn't say, do you want me to release to you Jesus? He says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? You know, it's like, no, 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 Barabbas, <laughs> we'll take Barabbas. And then after the, you know, after Barabbas gets turned loose, right, he says, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like, and the 
but the crowd had been so he'd been so popular with was this a different crowd than the crowd that greeted him in Jerusalem just a few days before how were the chief priests able to whip these people up or were these just you know patsies of the chief priest was this a did they bring their people down to to do this all right so uh, you kind of have to understand the Jewish culture. This might get a little bit intense, but all right. So all through the night, you have the Jewish leaders that are going. They're waking up the Sanhedrin. They're waking up the priests. They're getting everybody together for the trial. They had coordinated this whole thing with Judas from the beginning, so they kind of know what's coming on the night after the Passover dinner. So they've got their inner circle ready to go, ready to mobilize against Jesus, and it's go time. For the crowds, the morning sacrifice, so you got to remember at Jerusalem, you get all of these pilgrims that have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast and, and the festival of unleavened bread, and they're covering you know the, the hillsides and everything else, but they don't come into town. They don't come into Jerusalem proper until 9 a.m. for the morning sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. So before that, all the crowds... You know, particularly the ones that have come from Jericho and Galilee that are sympathetic, more sympathetic to Jesus, they're they're not in the city. So when this is going on, those people haven't, you know, technically speaking, they haven't gotten out of bed yet. You know, Jesus is going to be put on the cross at 9 a.m., and we're told that when he walks through the streets carrying the cross, that that's when everybody's coming into the city for morning sacrifice, and you get all these people that are totally shocked by what has happened in the last 12 hours. You know, the daughters of Jerusalem were told they're just weeping in the streets. Everybody doesn't know what to make of this. There's a great deal of shock in the city, but no, now it's in the hands of the Romans and nobody's going to get into it. The the, the Jewish leaders have, have nicely wrapped this up in a bow. And by the time, by the time the crowds come in, there's nothing, there's nothing they can do. It's in the hands of the Romans by this point. And so, it's not like all the crowds are awake. You got to remember, this is still early in the morning before 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. You know, that's good because I, I will admit to always having wondered how the crowd, you know, quote, unquote, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see, you know, the crowd had turned against Jesus after clearly they had supported him and, and had loved him just mm-hmm. before that. So that's good to know. Part of this, of understanding what's going on here is to really feel, I think, to feel the injustice of it all. This whole thing was packaged mm-hmm. and put together and executed. In, this is a political pot boiler in the extreme. You know, this is like mm-hmm. some story that you'd read by Tom Clancy, you know, or something like that. It's like this whole thing, they, had, they put this together and they executed it really to perfection. Yeah, and there's an urgency. I mean, you get the sense. So when we were just talking about Barabbas, we kind of jumped over Pilate's trying to to give this thing away, right? So the first time he goes before Pilate, they slip up and they they reveal that Jesus had come from Galilee. And so Pilate goes, wait, 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 Galilee? Oh, sweet. I don't have to deal with this thing. Take, (laughs) Take him to Herod Antipas. And so there you get Jesus going through his fourth trial now before Herod. And Herod's not interested in justice. He's a total... He's a mess. He's the one who put John the Baptist to death. So Jesus, I'm sure, has a special place in his heart for the guy who killed his cousin. Um, but Herod just wants to see him perform tricks. Like, he's not interested. In, and when Jesus goes before him and refuses to put on a show, refuses to answer questions, you know, Herod's kind of like, I'm done with him. I, I want nothing to do with him. Take him back to Pilate. 
you know, after mocking him, you know, they, they mock him and put some clothing on him. And so anyway, he goes back to Pilate and Pilate now for the second and third time says, I can't, I don't find anything to charge this man with, but you, you, you get the sense when the crowd who's there, remember this is before the crowds wake up and come in for the morning sacrifice says they answered crucify him. And when Pilate asked why, what crime has he committed? They shouted all the louder, crucify him. So you get this idea. They're intense. This can't wait. This needs to happen now. Um, that's the impression I get from reading it, like, do this now. Um, and so Pilate will ultimately wash his hands mm-hmm. and say, okay, it is as you desire, but this is on your hands. And that was something, too, that he actually did. I mean, he actually washed his hands. I mean, that mm-hmm. was a, a, to, to symbolize that, look, this is on you. This is on you guys. And didn't they, and, and this is probably in a different account here, but didn't, didn't the crowd say, fine, his blood be on us and our children? Yeah, they, they actually say that. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it's really, you know, only wow. the Lord can take something. You know, I would make that same prayer. You know, they're so hateful, and they sit before him, and they cry out with hatred, let his blood be on us and our children. And only the Lord can take something like that and turn it into a pretty beautiful prayer. Because you and I would say, let his blood be on us and our children, exactly. right? Like, he's going to transform his enemies into friends. That's the purpose of what he's going through right now. And I just imagine also from, you know, look, that's why he's here, so that his blood would be on you and your children. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, like it's really awesome. That's why he's here, you know. So uh, at that point, Pilate sends him out to actually be crucified. And this is where you were saying that the— Not yet. Nope. Oh, what happens so, next? So, so not yet. It says Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. So at this point, you know, it says in John 19, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They, they clothed him in a purple robe. In Matthew, it says scarlet robe. And they took him up again and again and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Um, and so they torture him. And this is going to be when the Romans tortured you, when they flogged you, they left you severely disfigured for the remainder of whatever life you had. Um, and I, so if you have children with you, you know, I'm about to describe something that's, that's really pretty awful, but what they would do is they would take something like, it's called a flagrum or a whip and they would, it was like a cat of nine tails and every strand they, they say was up to about three feet in length to get the highest possible, possible velocity. The Romans had perfected this and they would take these leather straps and fill them with shards of bone and iron balls. And so every time that came around you, the bone, the glass shards, pottery shards, the iron balls, they would hit. So they would crush your ribs and bruise you and stick into your flesh. And then they would yank it. And so they would rip your skin out. And so they did, a, in 1986, the Journal of the American Medical Association actually documented what this would have been like. They looked back at the passion and they documented the medical, what it would be like. And they said, as Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles, producing quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. 
pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. And Eusebius, who's an ancient historian who goes back to the days of Rome, you know, back when you used to see victims crucified, you know, you'd go by and you'd see them. He offers this description. He says, bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges even to the innermost veins and arteries so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both with their bowels and their members, were exposed to view. Isaiah 53 comments on this, you know, when it's looking forward to the Messiah, it says, by his stripes we are healed. And when Jesus gets done with this scourging, they didn't just do it to your back, they did it to your back, to your stomach, to the front of your legs, to your groin, to your buttocks, to your thighs and calves and arms, and every part of his body would have been just whipped to shreds. And so at the end of this, when he has put him through this unbelievable torture, Pilate then brings him back in front of the crowd. And it's here that he's going to say, behold the man, and the crowd still wants him crucified. You know, they, the, the color of the robe being purple, do you think that was a kind of a mocking of, you know, he's supposed to be royalty because ro- purple was the royal color? Was that Absolutely. the symbolism of it? Yeah. Yeah, and the color of the cloak is not the only significant thing. It's This is another one of those times where I think the Lord is in his sovereignty. He's painting a beautiful message in the midst of Jesus' suffering here. So in John 19, it starts and it just says, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Well, all that suffering, he's going to be shredded, right? But then after that, it says, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and then they cloak him in this robe, which... In Matthew's gospel, we're told that the robe is scarlet. And now this is significant here because in the Bible, all throughout the Bible, scarlet is associated with sin. It's unfaithfulness. It's it's the color of prostitution or adultery. And you see that all throughout. In Isaiah, he says, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be washed white as snow. And so what do you picture here that Jesus is now being cloaked in scarlet? Thorns were first given in Genesis 3 as the consequence of man's sin, and now Jesus is being crowned in those thorns, right? And so in that picture, you're seeing Jesus being cloaked in the color of sin. You see him crowned in the consequence of sin. And when you fast forward in John's gospel to John 19:23, we find the soldiers are now dividing Jesus's clothes, dividing them into four shears, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. And it says this garment was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom, And so here's this beautiful idea. Jesus is taking upon himself the scarlet garment and the crown of thorns. And he is giving away this seamless, perfect, faultless garment to his enemies. And that's that's prefiguring the great exchange that happens at the cross where he is cloaked in our sin and suffers the wrath of God. And yet he gives his perfection away. And we are now clothed in his garment of righteousness. So all of these details that are playing out are sovereign poetry. You know, it's it's God preaching the gospel even in the midst of this really awful, just, you know, darkness. There's the beauty of the gospel shining through even in the details. So all of these things, all of this deep symbolism with really just in every 
small step as we as we go through the story of the passion. Um, all of these things coming together to convince us of the unified message of it all. That mm-hmm. these aren't just random things. That everything that happened here happened to tell us something, to communicate the gospel to us. That the gospel is through this entire thing. Um, it's really it's really phenomenal. It's a you know it's one of the reasons why. Uh, I sort of wanted to, to do this particular topic and, and to, to go through it because I think that a lot of times we move from things, from one thing to another too quickly. It's like, oh, yeah, I did the Jesus, and then they did this, and then they did that, and then he died on the cross. I'm like, well, yeah, there's it, a lot of other things that happened in between, <laughs> yeah. you know? And it makes me wonder, like, and all these little things, and we're leaving so many of them unsaid just for the sake of time, but... And all of these things, God is sovereignly painting these little beautiful things in the midst. And it wasn't, I can tell you this, it wasn't beautiful for Jesus when he was in the middle of the whipping. Not at all. But in, in hindsight, you look back and you see what God was painting through those, through that suffering. And it makes me, it's, it's like I'm confident that even though I can't see it in the midst of things that come my way, like I'm, I'm just confident that God is poetically ordaining these things that someday they are going to be beautiful in much the same way. Where do they so, take him after that? So Pilate's hope is that by shredding Jesus, you know, the gospel of, or the gospel of Isaiah, it may as well be the gospel of Isaiah. In Isaiah, it says that he would be marred more than any man, meaning he would be, he would be beaten beyond human recognition. You'd look at him and go, what is that? Uh, so when Jesus is brought back before the crowds, Pilate's hope is that they will look at how much he has suffered, his entire body just absolutely shredded. He's hoping that they will have some bit of pity and sympathy, and they'll go, oh my goodness, that's enough. So Pilate presents Jesus before the crowds and says, here's your king, and without hesitation, they shout right back, take him away, take him away, crucify him. He says, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, they answer. And so finally, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified at that point. There is no mercy whatsoever. And you think about the fact that the Jews themselves would, would shout out, we have no king but Caesar. Yeah. Uh, which was obviously. Who they hated. Who they hated, yes, exactly. So. It's interesting to think that um, that their desire to, to kill Jesus, their hatred for him was so intense that they were working with their hated enemies mm-hmm. in order to accomplish that. So when Pilate hands him over then to be crucified, what happens at that point? And that brings us to the end of part three of A Guided Tour of Holy Week. Part four should be out tomorrow, so check back for it then as we will pick up where we left off with Jesus being sent by Pilate to be crucified. We hope this has been a meaningful time for all of you and that you've, you've had a chance to view Holy Week through a different lens. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.